Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Thank God for uh, all of our workers this morning. Uh, we do also quickly just want to remind you, we do have not only the, uh, the large poster flyer, we have the smaller size. And what I want to encourage you uh, is today as you're leaving, maybe you could take five or ten of these. I know I'm going to do this personally. I'm going to take a stack of these flyers and give them to some of the houses in my neighborhood uh, because I know that there are marriages that could benefit from this. And uh, truly, I think every marriage can benefit from this. And so I would encourage you, no matter where you are, you can do the same thing. You can carry a few of these with you. If you see somebody with a wedding ring on their finger, say, hey, Valentine's Day, what a perfect gift to give to your spouse this year. Uh, you can invite them, and uh, I want to encourage you to please join me in that. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. What a blessed time we are in front of today. I believe God's going to help us in this coming marriage seminar slash revival Uh, God's going to really, really help us. And I just, uh, as we are approaching this time, it's a busy time, yes, we're going to be in church a lot, but I want to encourage you to make up your mind ahead of time and say, you know, I'm going to do my best to be here for every service that I can be in. I'm not going to miss because I'm tired. I'm not going to miss because I got a hangnail. I'm not going to miss because, you know, because because there's there's something else happening If we could make that decision ahead of time and set your will, I believe God would bless that. How many believe that this morning? So Matthew chapter 16, as we turn into the word of God. I want to preach a message to you that uh, came as I was reading through our daily Bible reading a few days ago. And uh, and a scripture that I've read many times, uh, but uh, once again reminded me of God's incredible power. And I want to talk to you about transformation because one of the marks that God is moving in your life is that you need to be changing. You can't be the same as you were yesterday or two weeks ago or a year ago. The Christian life is a life of transformation. How many have figured that out already? The Word of God tells us that we ought to be changing from glory to glory, into His likeness and image. That means with each day that passes, you need to be less like you and more like Him. And if there is a roadblock that is stopping that transformation, you're in trouble. The first law of motion that was defined by Isaac Newton is that everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. 
In other words, an object at rest will stay at rest. Right? If your car is just sitting there, it's not going to move all by itself. It needs some force to be applied, whether that is you pressing the gas pedal or whether that is you uh, putting it into neutral and getting it out and shoving it down the road with your own strength. Your car will not move on its own or unless it could be on a slope and gravity can put a force upon it. But this is true of physical objects, but I want to tell you it's also true about your character. It's true about your physical life, your mental life. It's true about your spirituality. And one of the things that is so difficult for us, especially as time passes and as we gain, we'll say, experience in life, is that it gets a little bit harder for us to change. Maybe you, uh, maybe you might know the standard railroad gauge, the distance between railroad tracks on a standard railroad track. It's a very interesting number. The standard railroad gauge in the United States is four feet, eight and a half inches. And you think, where in the world would that come from? That's distance between the two rails on a train track. Four feet, eight and one half inches. Interesting story. Why is it such a strange number? Well, because that's how they built them way back in the first days of the Wild West. Well, why did the English have that particular gauge? Well, it's because back in England and in Europe, the people who uh, built the roads at that time, they were locked into that because uh, wagons had been built at the same scale. Wagons for as long as anybody could remember. Their wheels were exactly four feet, eight and one-half inches apart. Why in the world would the wagons have that width? Well, because the roads that went crisscross across Europe, they would have ruts in the road for exactly that same width. The wagon wheels could be, have a smooth travel across the roads. Well, why in the world would the roads have ruts that are exactly that width apart. Interesting. Because the very first long-distance highways in Europe were built by Imperial Rome. Going back 2,000 years, the roads have been in use ever since, and the very first Roman war chariots, guess what? They had wheels that were four feet, eight and one-half inches apart. And do you know why they had that? Because that was exactly the width that was needed to fit two horses side by side. And for 2,000 years, the gauge still remains in effect. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that it's incredibly difficult. Once a standard has been set, once a habit has been formed, once a lifestyle has been set in motion, it's incredibly difficult to change things. And that's what I want to preach about this morning. I want you to, to recognize with me areas in your life where you've gotten in a rut. In the scripture we're about to read, we can find a key to unlocking supernatural transformation. And my prayer is that you would drink deeply of the power of God to break us out of our habitual 
problems that we seem to fall back into again and again. Let's read together Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some people say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. Others say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Powerful question. We all need to ask ourselves. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the possibility of transformation in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you give us supernatural power to overcome our flesh, the habits of how things have always been. I'm praying this morning that you would break us out and God cause us to be those people who are changing from glory unto glory into your likeness and your image. Don't let us be the same, God. Don't let us be the same. God, you transform our hearts today. We give you glory for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a message I've titled, Revelation Brings Transformation. Revelation Brings Transformation. And I want to begin by looking at all the wrong answers. Our scripture begins as Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? There was a lot of different rumors about who Jesus was when he was on the earth. People began to have different opinions and ideas and theories about who Jesus was. Some, as they answered this question, they begin to speak to Jesus. Yeah, some people say you're John the Baptist, uh, just reincarnated somehow. Some people say you're Elijah, back from the dead. Others say maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus is intending to help the disciples to begin to differentiate between opinions of the world and opinions of truth. Men of the world talked about Jesus and thought about Him. We don't know who Jesus may be. He might be a very remarkable person. He does lots of interesting things. But we don't know who exactly He is. See, that's how much of the world approaches Jesus, right? Jesus is just an interesting story in a book from a long time ago. This is how we approach Jesus before He was our Savior and our Lord. Interesting story. I've heard that before. I might have seen the movie a couple of times too. But the the view, the, the idea of who Jesus is is very unclear, undefined, without any direction, lacking definition. How many know that the world treats Jesus... Very, in very much the same way that Pontius Pilate did. Pontius Pilate was curious about Jesus. He was interested in Jesus. Here's a man who had stirred up some trouble, and now he's standing before Pontius Pilate, and he's looking at this man 
trying to find what, what, what the deal is. He's interested somehow, but never takes the full step to really know who Jesus is. And that's how much of the world treats the Lord Jesus Christ. Curious. But never close enough truly to look at or examine him. If we are not careful, beloved, this is what our faith can turn into. That if we've had an experience with Jesus or seen him at work at one point in our lives, what we can do is begin to have incorrect ideas. Jesus might be an interesting story or a sermon that pastor preaches on Sunday morning, but really, what does he have to do with my life? There are many wrong answers about Jesus. How many know that? Many wrong answers, but only one right answer. In a world that cries uh, of, uh, uh, of multiculturalism, many roads, different paths, so, uh, uh, we have to be tolerant, we have to accept everyone as they are, and I'm all for tolerance, but the problem is with tolerance in the politically co- correct world is that we are tolerant of everybody except for one, Jesus. We don't want him to be part of our discussion. We don't want him to be, and especially those people who follow him, tolerant of every view except for Christianity. Did you ever notice that? How tolerant is it then? They said there's many different wrong answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But how many know that truth is singular in nature? Truth is something that is true no matter what. There is such a thing this morning as absolute truth. It's not to say what's true for me is different than what's true for you. This is what so much of our current generation is saying, well, you know, if if whatever floats your boat, whatever you like, you can stick with that, bro, but that's, you know, that's a different truth than what I want to believe. You let me believe what I believe, I'll let you believe what you believe, and we'll both be right. (laughs) That's not truth. There is an absolute truth. I was speaking with Brother Andre this morning. We were talking about the, the, uh, the polarization effect that Jesus has on the world. See, Jesus, whenever he, he enters a situation, whenever Jesus, whenever his name is applied in a conversation, there is a polarizing effect that occurs. And what that is, is that either you are with him or you are against him. Brother Andre mentioned that he, when he has conversations about Jesus with his family or with his co-workers, it's amazing that he'll start to talk about Jesus and all of a sudden people run away like rats when you turn the light on or cockroaches. It's like the word Jesus, it has this effect to repel. And what that is is exactly what it speaks about in, in, uh, in the book of John, that men loved the darkness rather than having their evil deeds exposed but i want to tell you that truth is singular error can be many things there's a thousand things that people believe wrongly there's only one truth that leads to eternal life and that is who jesus really is that's where jesus makes a turn in our scripture he says who do men say that i am they give all these wrong answers 
And then he speaks a word. He asks them a question that we all need to ask. Who do you say that I am? In other words, what is your understanding? What is your belief? What is your theology about who Jesus is? And right there, he's taking the conversation out of the abstract, out of theory. He's saying, what do you believe? He makes it personal. I want to tell you, this is the job of any good preacher, of any good pastor, is to take ideas that are true and apply them personally into into your life. Any good minister of the gospel. Every believer in this place needs to develop the skill of taking these abstract truths of God's kingdom and applying them personally into the lives of people around you. Parents need to learn this for their children. I... with these Bible studies, I was teaching the Bible study leaders last week that the, your best friend in a Bible study is a question. The Socratic method. Taking the Word of God and applying it to people's lives. What about you? What a powerful tool that question is. As we take the things that we've heard and say, wow, does that apply to my life? Jesus is doing this very thing. He's taking the idea of who Jesus is and he's asking them personally, who do you say that I am? And now it's at this point that I want you to take particular notice about the answer that Peter gives and the response that Jesus has. Because I believe if you'll pay attention to this, you'll have a key to unlock personal change in your life, in your marriage, in your finances, in your children. If you'll figure this out this morning. Simon Peter answered this question and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we we read that today having 2,000 years of vision, you know, uh, uh, hindsight being 2020. We can look back and say, yeah, of course, Peter, of course that's true. But the moment that Peter spoke that, there was a big question in the air. In Israel and in, in, uh, in, in the area that Jesus lived, in the places where he was preaching, there was a big question, who is Jesus? And people had lots of different answers, as we saw. But when Peter proclaims, Jesus, you are the Christ, the word Christ, it literally means the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who has been chosen by God to save the whole world. You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. This is the answer that Simon Peter gives. And what Jesus responds to him, as we all know, he says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. In other words, he says, that's not something you got out of a book. That's not something that somebody else whispered in your ear. That's not something you saw written in a newspaper. He says, flesh and blood, earthly things did not show this to you, Peter, but it was the Father in heaven who gave you that revelation. I want to tell you, this is something that is so desperately missing in most Christians' lives today. It is revelation. Revelation. Revelation, it is the name of the last book of the Bible. 
The word literally means to be revealed. Something, some truth, some, uh, uh, some, some facts that had already existed. It's not that this is new information. Jesus has always been the Christ. But for Peter, this is something that was revealed to him by the Father. That God opened up a truth to Peter that was before that time unknown to him, unconfirmed. Let me ask you this morning. When's the last time you had revelation? When's the last time? Not, I'm not talking about listening to a sermons on the radio. I'm not talking about watching TBN and having an interesting fact present. I'm talking about when was the last time something was revealed to you beyond flesh and blood? And I want to tell you there is a direct relationship between revelation and transformation. Stick with me right now. There is a connection between your revelation and the transformation of your life. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a revelation. This is something you didn't get from flesh and blood. And because, Peter, because you have received a revelation, watch this, he's about to be changed forever. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. In the first, uh, Jesus responds to him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He mentions his first name. This is the name that Peter had carried all of his lifetime, Simon. And it's, it's an interesting word study in the Greek. The word Simon is literally translated a little pebble, a small stone on the ground. Simon, that's his name. Simon Bar-Jonah, that means the son of, of Jonah. He's identifying his past life, right? Jesus is saying, Simon, the little pebble, the son of Jonah. I remember who you are, Simon. But because you've received a revelation, because you've been open to that, you have sought revelation and you have received this and you have spoken it out. Watch what Jesus says. Blessed are you. The first mark of God's transformation is supernatural blessing. Supernatural blessing. I'm not talking about getting rich. Certainly there is a financial portion of blessing, but I want to tell you blessing is far more than that. Blessing of mind, blessing of decisions, blessing of a family, blessing of being in God's presence, blessing of having a heart for God, having some zeal and some passion in your life, some blessing. Blessed are you. If we're going to have real revelation, it has to be more than flesh and blood. But the most interesting thing to me and what caught my attention about this Scripture is what he says next in verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. Jesus now calls him by his new name. The name that he gave him at the beginning. Do you remember when he first met Simon by the seaside? He says, you are Simon, but you shall be called Peter. That was a future statement. One day, Simon, you're a little pebble, but in the Greek language, the word Peter, Petros, 
it means a large foundational stone. In those days, if you were a builder, you would have to always start with a foundation stone. And from that stone, all the other measurements could be made. That's the word Petras. And Jesus is saying, yes, the little pebble, that's where I took you from. But Peter, one day, you'll be established as a foundation for all time. You will be a foundational stone. One day, Peter, people will look back on your life and and say that was the foundation of the church. Don't we see that today? The Catholic Church still sees Peter as the first pope. Uh, We we see error in that, but I I still tell you, Peter was a foundation stone for the church. We look back on today, we find strength from the life of Peter. Isn't that what a foundation stone does? We find strength and we find courage because of Peter. Jesus predicted it all the day that he brought Peter, Simon, to him. And he says, you shall be called Peter, small stone, you shall be. I believe it's this day, this day, the day when Peter expressed the revelation that he had received, that he changed from little pebble to foundational stone. We know that he was not perfect. Peter still, after this moment, he made some silly mistakes. He said some stupid things. But it did not change the fact that Jesus has changed his name. And you know, if you study the Bible, that a change of name means a change of character. Change of who you are. In other words, on this day, Simon was transformed into Peter. Let me ask you, are there any little pebbles in your life that need to be transformed? Are there any areas of your character God's trying to transform? We all look at our lives and we look at what we could be and what God calls us to be and often we look with regret, we look with uh, disappointment. God, I've failed you. God, I've done so many things that are so stupid. But I want to tell you that the, the, the key to having a transformed life is right here. It's in Revelation. If you know who Jesus is, then he will change who you are. You cannot have an experience with Jesus without him also transforming who you are. We see this going back into into the patriarchs of our faith. When Abram was called from the land of the Chaldeans, we know that in order to receive the blessing that God had intended for him, he could not remain the same. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He changed the name of his wife, Sarai, to Sarah with an H. Both of, the, both of their names received an H that wasn't there before. Received a spirit. By the way, when you say the word H, it sounds like a wind. It sounds like a, a spirit moving through your... And in the same way, God is adding a spiritual dimension to their lives that was not there before. God had to change their character. You know the story of Jacob. Jacob, as we just read through the book of Genesis in our Bible reading plan, 
The Bible says that, that Jacob wrestled with an angel of the Lord. Wrestled. It says, I'll not let you go until you bless me. How did God bless him? Changed him. Touched the socket of his hip. And forever, Jacob walked differently, didn't he? He had a different walk. People looked at him and said, you're, you're walking funny, aren't you? Yeah, because God changed me. And the mark of that was that God changed his name. Jacob, which means a deceiver, con artist. And God changed his name to Israel, a prince with God. The name Israel is so interesting. It means one who has struggled with God and has prevailed. Think of that. He has struggled with God and has prevailed. He would not let go of that angel, would he? The angel said, let me go, Jacob. Leave this alone. No. I will continue to struggle because I need to know who you are. I need to know how to receive a change, a transformation in my life. See, we don't often think of this, the greatest change in the world is not the changing of entire nations. The greatest change you can ever experience is when you change yourself. Famous author Leo Tolstoy, who said, everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody ever thinks of changing himself. This is the problem with people who are big-minded about, let's, let's transform our culture. Let's change the laws of the government. Let's force change from the top down, some would say. But the greatest change that could ever occur is when you look at yourself in the mirror. The man in the mirror. Somebody got to make a change. (laughs) That's the greatest change that could ever occur. Is day by day as we have revelation of who God is. Listen, you can't know who He is. And also not change. There was a study done out of the university uh, in Philadelphia about a hundred years ago. There are five different kinds of attitudes about change. And you, you identify yourself in this list. All, the first kind of people who, as they approach change, are called early innovators. This is a very small group of people. 2.6%. These are people who enjoy running with new ideas. But you know there's a problem with running with new ideas. Is oftentimes new ideas fail. Early innovators. There's a second group of people represented by 13.4% of the population. These are called early adopters. Early adopters who let others make the first mistakes and yet still ahead of the curve. Number three is the slow majority. These are the herd followers. Number four group, 34%, again, is the reluctant majority. There's a large portion of people that are a reluctant majority. they'll, They'll change, but after some difficult striving. And the fifth group of people representing the last 16%, are those who are antagonistic toward change. They hate change. They resist change. Can, I, can you take a guess which group of people is more dramatic in the church of Jesus Christ? It's those who resist 
change. There's a war happening in many church circles today, and it's a war over such silly things about whether we're going to play the drums in church service or whether we're going to wear certain clothes. And, And there are some who are antagonistic. This group is basically carnal, who cannot receive change. In any way, this is I, I'm seeing this reflected in my in my industry in the, in the work that I do. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, maybe you might be aware of this. Um, there is a, a change that occurred in the in the Windows PC world, and that change is that Windows 7, this operating system that's been around for 12 or 13 years, has now reached its end of life. In other words, Microsoft, this incredible software company. They are no longer providing support for Windows 7. So if you have a Windows 7 computer, you have a choice to make. You can either reluctantly change, or you can be antagonistic and say, I'll never get Windows 10. And can I tell you, there's people who come into our shop at the computer place. They are that 16%. I don't want Windows 10. Everybody's told me Windows 10 is horrible. I don't want to change to Windows 10. I like Windows 7, and I'm not going to change. But your computer is falling apart. It doesn't work. It's slow. It's crappy. I don't care. I'd rather stick with the old thing that I know about than switch to something new and have the discomfort of change. I'm watching it happen in in front of my eyes every day. It's a good time to be in the computer industry. Because a lot of people are buying new computers right now because of this change. But I see, I see those antagonists. I see those people who refuse. No, don't tell me what I need. Don't tell me what's good for me. I'll not change. Can I tell you, there's a piece of that person inside of every one of you. There's a piece of that person who says, Windows 7 till I die. Or there's even worse, there's a few people still out there. Windows XP, till I die. There's a few. Most of them are gray hairs. But they like Windows XP, and even though it's full of security flaws, and even though hackers can have a heyday with every computer on XP, they don't care. I like XP. I like Windows 7. I'm going to stay with it, no matter how much pain it puts into my life. That's the attitude that we have about certain things in our lives. Pastor, I'll never give more than 10%. Never. Why would I? I, I, do, my ta- I do my part. Why would I ever do more than that? I'll not change. I'll, you know what? Uh, I'll never uh, witness to somebody outside of an outreach. Why would I do that? We get stuck in the rut that for 2,000 years has been the same. See, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. It would be difficult for me to learn something new. Difficult, too difficult, Pastor. I like being Simon. I know who Simon is. Look, I'm a good fisherman. Uh, this, this church leadership stuff, that's, that's got to be for somebody else. I know how to fish. I know nets. I know the game. I know Windows 7. I'm just going to stick with that, okay? Not okay. 
Because when you get stuck in the antagonism of being the same, there is a you begin to be cut off from the miraculous of God. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Again, verse 18. You are Peter. There's a change in your life. This foundation stone, Peter, the person that I am making you into, what does he say? On this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? It's the rock of transformation that has come from revelation. On this rock, I will build... My church will only exist as my people are being transformed from glory to glory. So what that tells us is that when we get stuck in a lack of transformation, when we stay the same for long periods of time, it means that the church is suffering. Jesus is not able to build where there is no transformation. Jesus is not able to bring his message to a needful world in a place where nobody's changing, where nobody is transformed from glory unto glory. On this rock, I will build my church. This is connected this morning. Revelation brings transformation which brings a building of the church. See, we struggle. We struggle, don't we? We, we do these outreaches. We, uh, I'm advertising on Facebook. I'm, you know, I'm doing all that I can to, to get the word out to our community. But I tell you, all of those things, you add them up and put them together, are not as powerful as when you would be transformed in your heart. Because as we are transformed, this is what Jesus builds his church on. And when Jesus builds the church, it means we don't have to. It means that he is more interested in saving souls than we are. That doesn't mean that we take our foot off the gas and stop trying. All I'm saying is that we unlock supernatural power of God when we will find revelation. When we will spend our lives asking it again, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? It's the Apostle Peter, or the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And Jesus knocks him off of his horse and the two questions he asked, who are you and what do you want me to do? It was on that rock Jesus was able to build his church through the life of Paul. Let me close with this last statement in verse 18. A statement of victory. A statement of hope. He said, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. How many have ever heard that statement before? Hopefully you've prayed that. I pray that in my prayers many times. Lord, The gates of hell shall not prevail. That's an interesting statement. Where are the gates of hell? 
And why is it that Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail? See, what this speaks about, this is speaking about a spiritual war, right? A spiritual war in which heaven is attacking the gates of hell. There is an offense against the powers of hell. The reason I say that is because so much of our spiritual warfare is defensive in nature. The devil attacks and we have to respond. It's a defensive church so often. The devil attacks us and we have to bind and we have to, you know, we have to pray and devil get out of my house, right? But when Jesus is describing spiritual warfare here, it's describing the church going after hell. Do you see that? We're attacking the gates of hell and the promise of Jesus is that those gates will not prevail. We are Through the power of Jesus, we are able to attack the gates of hell and prevail. This is a different mindset. This is not just how do we survive. This is how do we win as a church. How does it happen? It happens as we have revelation of Christ. He's able to transform us. And then he's able to build his church in us and through us. We know shortly after this, you just read a few paragraphs down, Peter makes another stupid mistake. It doesn't mean that he is a perfect man. And I'm not, uh, I'm not expecting anyone here to grow angel wings. But we ought to be, like Peter, people who can receive revelation. People who can hear from God. People who can have relationship with Jesus. That's all it is. When you know who He is, He will change who you are. And this is how we gain victory in the kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vvph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.